Looking at the Bible, each of these weeks, even though we're not tracking through a particular book of the Bible, um, it is the Bible that it gives us our foundation and it is in the Bible that God speaks to us. And today we're going to be just looking at a couple of verses from the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, good morning and welcome. My name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. Really good to be with you this morning as we open our series called The Air We Breathe. Um, and now, if you haven't been with us in the lead up to the series, you may not know uh, that this series is based on a book of the same title. And we're doing this not because we get commissioned from the books or anything like that, but, uh, but it's a helpful inroad, this series, that if you wanted to do some further reading on your own, I'd highly recommend grab- grabbing that book by Glenn Shrivener, uh, really diving into a range of different topics in which the Bible and the Christian worldview has been foundational to so many of the beliefs that we now presuppose and hold to be dear. Um, but I'm going to pray that as we start our time today looking at the first and maybe most foundational one, uh, the belief in equality, that God would be opening our eyes and hearts to His truth in His Word. So let's pray together. Father God, we praise You that Your Word is truth, that You speak to us through Your Word, the Bible, that we can know who You are, And then we can trust this word because you are the one who has given it to us. Father, we praise you that you are a God who loves his people, who has made all humankind in your image, and that you have done this to demonstrate your wisdom and your goodness and your justice. And so we pray that through this God you would make us a more loving people, a more fair and just people, that we might glorify and magnify you. Amen. Well, there are many arguments today around how to achieve equality or what that even looks like. But one thing that is not up for debate, and the thing that no one is debating, is that equality itself is a sacred value. No one's debating that. And you might think, well, of course, why would be? I mean, it's kind of like debating, like, is the sky blue? It's so obvious a thing. Why would you even need to question it or even think any more deeply on it? It's just a given, like a self-evident truth. So that even when people say something that that is contrary to that idea or even sounds contrary to that idea, it provokes in us a really strong reaction. Somewhere kind of early on uh, in the COVID sort of pandemic, a guy called Lord Sumption, who was a former UK Supreme Court justice, was on TV. And even that name makes you just think of someone villainous and rich, doesn't it? But anyway, but they were debating whether the government-mandated lockdown was a proportionate response to the pandemic and all of this. And in the midst of that, he said something that caused a stir. He said, and I'm saying this in quotation marks, some lives are worth less than others. And that, of course, provoked quite a response. Uh, what he reasoned was that while the elderly were sort of more affected potentially by COVID, it was the young who were more affected by the lockdowns uh, and that it was kind of punishing too few for, you know, for the greater good. But with that, someone called and on air, her name was Deborah James, and she was a woman vulnerable to COVID because she had cancer. And she said, 
with all due respect, I'm the person that you say their life is not valuable. To which Sumption replied, I didn't say your life wasn't valuable, I just said it was less valuable. I don't know if you've ever tried to make something better, but then you made it worse. If you have, you can feel what maybe he was feeling at that time. And she responded, Who are you to put a value on life? In my view, and I think many others, life is sacred. And I don't think we should make those judgment calls. All life is worth saving, regardless of what life it is that people are living. Now, you can note the instinctive reaction to his words there. And the natural response, even as, even as I said it, there was kind of the oohs around here as well, because it's such a deeply held fundamental belief that we are equal and our lives are of equal worth and value, that to say anything that's contrary to that is rightly a shock. Now, to clarify, what he said there was actually kind of clumsily put. He, he later sort of clarified by saying this. He was like, I was making a perfectly simple point. Every policymaker has got to make difficult choices. Sometimes that involves putting a value on human life. It's a standard concept in health economics, quality-adjusted life years. This is what I was talking about. Policymakers have to do that. Otherwise, they cannot weigh up the consequences of different policy choices. And that is a helpful clarification, and it was maybe clumsily put initially. But the, the thing still stands that we have a very visceral reaction to when the idea of equality is challenged, and rightly so. It is one of our deepest and most deeply held beliefs. But the question is, well, why? Equality, when you think about it, is not so obvious a truth, is it? I mean, think about it. If someone said to you, what makes us equal? What do you think would be the natural or normal response, the common response? I think if I'm reading it rightly, is that most people would say, we're equal because we are the same. But then, of course, the follow-up question to that would be, well, what about us is the same? Physically, we're not the same. We're different heights, hair colors, skin colors, different shapes. Male and female are not the same. And the response to that might be, well, okay, maybe outwardly we're not the same, but inwardly we are. Right? It's at a, at a kind of DNA level. But it's also true that that's not exactly the case either. We have a unique DNA. And even if it were the same, why would that make us equally or inherently valuable? As Glenn Shrivener writes in his book, The Air We Breathe, we share 40% of our DNA with bananas. This fact reveals very little about the value of humans or of bananas. DNA does not and cannot confer moral worth. So we can't find it in our physical sameness. But we're also not socially or economically the same. What's the same about a monarch and a slave? Outwardly, they are in completely different circumstances. And that's why the ancient world that Jesus walked into did not believe in equality, did not have a deeply held foundational belief about equality. The great philosophical minds Plato and Aristotle, on, who, on whom so much of Western thought is still based, did not believe in equality. In fact, one way to think of it is this. If Plato were to hear the phrase, some lives are worth more than others, it probably would have been met with a shrug, a sense of like, well, what's, what's the debate about? Yes, of course that's the case. In fact, if you were to try and argue with him about equality, 
His response might be something like this. Your faith in equality fascinates me, and I'd like to be able to see what you see. Clearly, equality is very important to you. You live your life in light of this belief, and I can respect that. But to me, it looks as if you've just decided to believe in something with no reason or evidence. I'm afraid I'm not convinced. And in fact, that kind of criticism echoes one of the main criticisms of Christianity, isn't it? In fact, in that phrasing, you could really sub out the word equality for God. Your faith in God fascinates me, and I'd like to be able to see what you see. Clearly, God is very important to you. You live your life in light of this belief, and I can respect that. But it looks to me as if you've just decided to believe in something with no reason or evidence. I'm afraid I'm not convinced. And this, of course, is no accident. That in the heritage of Western thought, the idea of God and equality came in together. That actually, historically, the grounding for belief in the equality of all humankind is grounded in the belief in God. That Jesus, who claims to be God, entered human history and brought the story of equality with him. And it is the case that it's this story. And the Bible story that has most informed our thought about human equality. Because the truth is, we get these values from the stories that we hold to be true and believe. In his book, Homo Deus, Yuval Noah Harari, who is not a religious man at all, I'm not sure if he'd describe himself as more agnostic or atheist, but he wrote this about human rights and the belief in equality. He said, Most legal systems in the world today. Are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story that we've invented. They're not an objective reality. They're not a biological fact about Homo sapiens. Take a human being, cut him open, look inside. You'll find the heart, kidneys, neurons, hormones, DNA, but you won't find any rights. The only place you find rights is in the stories we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. They may be very positive stories, very good stories, but they are still just fictional stories that we've invented. I don't know if you catch his point, but his point is there is nothing about us that would confer immediately that we are worth something or equally worth the same thing. There is nothing in the laws of nature that would demonstrate that we should treat one another equally. Nature is inherently unfair. The strong rule the weak, and there's nothing that anyone's to do about it. Now, it's in the stories. And particularly the story of the Bible, that we believe in the value of human worth. You can even understand it in this way. Right now, there's a small cricket、uh, tournament going on called the Ashes. You may have heard about it. But at the, at the bottom of the, what started it was when, and this is kind of summarizing things quickly, when the English first lost to Australia, it was a deeply humiliating thing. It was like losing to your little brother who was like decades younger than you. And at that point, they decided that English cricket had died. They burned the stumps, put them into an urn, and that's how we got the ashes. Now, that little ashes urn right now would be, I mean, its value would be inestimable. I don't know how much it would cost to actually buy it. I mean, you can't buy it, so I guess technically it's priceless. But if at some point it were to be sold, if Test cricket dies off somewhere in the future and someone actually sells that item, it would be worth an incredible amount of money. But if you'd bought it, And then you found out that what you had was not actually that original Ashes urn, but it was a replica, it would be instantly worthless, wouldn't it? The thing that gives it value is not its actual properties, 
But it's the story around it, that this was the urn, where that actual thing happened, and it was this historic moment that it's connected to. It's the story that gives the item an actual worth. And in the same way, for us as people, it's not our matter or ourselves that give us worth. It's the story that we believe about who we are. And ultimately in the West, it was the God story. That contrary to Harari's belief that it's a fictional story, that those who hold to the faith hold that this is the true story of God and humankind. And it starts right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1.1, we read this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The origin story in Christianity starts with and centers on God. A God who made and a God who created. And it was different to other ancient Near Eastern origin stories. But often the origin stories around humankind was that it started with a battle between warring gods. And that out of, out of that, humanity was birthed in conflict, which explains why there's so much conflict today. But here in the Bible, it starts very serenely and very peacefully. It's just God, unopposed, who creates everything. And throughout the first chapter of Genesis, we see that God creates everything and he creates it good. That his creation is good. It's not chaotic. But the one thing that he calls very good is humankind. That humankind together are unique in God's creation. And in that, we read this in Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the an wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so here is the origin of equality. It's not our similarity that could be debated endlessly. It's not our class or our status which comes and goes. It is grounded in the nature of God. Because God has conferred his worth onto us. Humankind is made in the image of God. And this is radical. The other thing that's so significant about this is that other ancient religions believed that you may have some rights if you adhered to the religion that was believed to be true. But if you were outside of that, your life was kind of forfeit. But here in Scripture, the belief was that all humankind, regardless of their beliefs, was made in the image of God. And that that was irreversible. And therefore, there were inalienable human rights. That there were rights and protections that any person was worthy of just by virtue of their membership of the human race because there is one God and one creator and one humankind made in his image and when Jesus entered human history God himself he expanded this idea when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was he replied in this way and even if you didn't grow up with a church background or anything you might be familiar with these words he said love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and Love your neighbor as yourself. That is to say, because we're all made in God's image, the way you treat others is connected to God. There is a God who will hold us accountable for how we treat one another, how we treat other people who also share his image. God is personally invested in how we relate to one another. He's personally invested in this equality. 
But not only that, I don't know if you notice what is so radical about what Jesus said here. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. That is, your neighbor is the person next to you. So Jesus is saying, take the highest possible standard you can for treatment, that is, the way that you would like to be treated, and you're to treat other people, your neighbor, that is, anyone who is around you, by that same standard. Now these ideas are so embedded in our culture now that they almost seem unexceptional, but it was radical for Jesus' time. And they were not accepted in Jesus' day. These were some of the very reasons that Christianity was opposed, particularly for the first 300 years. In the second century AD, a Greek philosopher named Celsus, who was one of the most vehement critics of Christianity at the time, firstly he wrote this about Christianity. He said, they're only able to convince the foolish, dishonorable, stupid, and only slaves, women, and children, which was meant to be disparaging. And then he said, the radical error in Jewish and Christian thinking is that it is human-centered. They say that God made all things for man, but this is not at all evident. In no way is man better in God's sight than ants and bees. His criticism of Jesus' teaching and of Christianity broadly was in this belief that humankind was unique and equally valuable. See, this was a radical idea. But it's become so normal for us, it's almost just the air we breathe. We lose the sense of how radical it was, what he actually said. And it's also the case that we forget that this isn't the way that the world naturally operates. I remember when I was in school and university, I was learning a language. And one of the teachers from one of those classes was explaining, we had to do kind of a cultural topic on the side to sort of understand the culture. And he was talking about, uh, it must have been something to do with I don't know, transport or something like that, but the issue came up that this particular country had uh, an exorbitant amount of motorbike accidents. And with that, an exorbitant amount of head injuries because the helmets they were using were kind of not up to standard. And in asking about how this situation came about, what happened was that the president made helmets, made it illegal to not wear a helmet. How do you say that? Made it mandatory to wear a helmet, but not for people's safety, but because he planned to give his brother-in-law the contract to make all of the helmets. And in order to save the most money, he used something like a, it was like a World War II patent on a helmet. They had that kind of German-style sort of helmet. And so in an accident, they're almost completely useless. Often the chin straps didn't even work, so they came off. And in asking about it, I was like, oh, people must be shocked at that kind of nepotism. And he, who'd, who'd obviously been in the country for a long time, said, well, the thing is, it's a really important value that you look after your family. And so it's sort of expected that if you have power, the first people you should share that with should be your family. If you get a government job, your first obligation would be to get people in your family jobs. And so if you get to that point, that level of power, it is actually kind of reasonable that you look after, it's almost a moral obligation that you look after family first. Now for us, this was shocking because a value in our culture is equality. And that actually trumps the value of family. That no, people don't get special privilege or priority just because they're related to you. Can you see how radical Jesus' words would have been for his day then? When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, just think of all the values that he just cut across with a single stroke. He cut across family, race, ethnicity, sex, status, class, 
He cut across all of those in a single word when he said, neighbor. He says, if they are next to you, they are equal to you. And over centuries and now millennia, Jesus' ideas won out. They came out on top. This is the origin of human rights and democracy. They won over people without power first, but then eventually people with power. Now that's not to say that people with power act rightly or according to these values, of course not. But they have become so foundational that even when Supreme, former Supreme Court Justice Lord Sumption says something carelessly like, not all lives are worth the same or some lives are worth less than others, it causes an instant allergic reaction. And so with that, you might even think, okay, well, look, maybe it's the case that even for our culture, it was Christianity that discovered this idea of equality first, but we can kind of take it and move on from there. Kind of like, look, Newton discovered gravity, but we can just take those ideas and then sort of carry it forward. But here's the difference. Our belief in God and human equality are not so easily separated. If the belief in equality came from belief in God, then that is the central element. And if equality is located in God and you remove God, the whole thing starts to unfurl. So you could, you could forgive a child for thinking that they could unscrew a light bulb and then walk out into the dark and use it as a torch. Because we know that that's not how it works. You can't simply unplug it from the system and have it work in the same way. But I think it's also the case that equality is an idea that isn't easily unplugged from the Christian story. That this is how we came to this view that we are equal and it's not easily extracted whilst taking out other elements like God. See, one of the questions when it comes to Christianity and particularly equality in our contemporary culture is, well, haven't Christians been inconsistent in regards to this value of, of equality when it comes to things particularly like gay or trans equality issues? That rather than being the origin of equality, that Christians have actually, actually been the enemies of equality. And I think in some ways that, that that can be a fair accusation that there are times where the church has not lived up to the standard in the scriptures of loving your neighbor as yourself and of holding people and their lives in high esteem, knowing that they are made in the image of God. But it's also the case that the Bible has deep foundational beliefs about equality and also deep foundational beliefs about marriage being between a man and a woman, about family, and about sex and gender not being interchangeable. And it's true that these ideas are not compatible with modern ideas of equality around marriage or around sex and gender. And it's also true that even if you remove those foundations, it's not the case that it solves all debate straight away either. Currently, there is massive debate, even within gay and trans equality movements, around what equality actually looks like, and particularly around trans issues, how this is to be implemented. And I've listened to hours of debate even just leave Christians out of the picture, hours of debate of people within the movement trying to work out the complexities of these issues. And my observation from the outside looking in is that at the moment there is missing a common story and a common ground and a uniting thread in which to settle the debates around equality. 
that because there is no foundational beliefs about the nature of reality or the reality of nature or truth or what truth is or if there even is truth, there's actually no way to settle the debates around important issues on equality. And what it's leading to is kind of, it's almost like boxing on roller skates. No one has any solid ground to stand on and to push back on or to, to stand firmly on. And I might be proved wrong in this, but in a decade's time, I do wonder whether extracting equality from the God story is unraveling the ability to talk across divides about important equality issues. That we may actually see that this is a clue to the idea that equality is actually embedded in the Christian story and not easily separated out. It's not like the laws of gravity that depend only on the faculties of our observation, but it requires a belief in God who made humankind in his image. And if you are here and not sure where you stand before God, or whether you are maybe describe yourself as skeptical or unsure or even just inquiring, can I encourage you to dive into the God story, the story of the Bible? Because if the belief in equality is important to you and something that you hold to be precious, it might be a clue to the fact that the, Bible, the God of the Bible is real. Think of it in this way. At the moment, when, when I can't sleep, I read World War I or II books to put me to sleep. So, I mean, I'd, I don't want to throw shade on the authors, but for whatever reason, that's the thing that just helps me kind of fall asleep if I can't. But one of the most, the most heart-rending stories in it is that uh, in any kind of conflict zone, families get separated. And sometimes because, like, parents have to go away, they need to live with their aunt and uncle or whatever it is. But it often makes me think about, I wonder what it would be like to be there when those families, after the conflict was resolved, what it would be like to see those families reunited to see kids who'd never met their biological parents meet them for the first time. And imagine what that experience would be like for them to be hugged for the first time by their own parents, not knowing if they'd ever see them again. But also how much about their life it would explain. To meet their parents for the first time and be like, oh, that's why my ears look like that, or that's why I sound like that, or even strange little quirks like, that's why my handwriting is a certain way to see the resemblance in their family, to be like, these are the people who are responsible for my existence and this is why I bear their image. What if it's the case that your belief in equality might be the clue to the fact that you belong to a God who made all humankind in his image? That you've been separated not by war but by sin, but that he has made a way back to himself and there is a God who loves you like a father who will welcome you with open arms who knows you and who made you and that you are in his image and that as you value things like equality, you echo back to God his own nature, his own justice and goodness. That as you dive into the Christian story, you might find the God who made you and whom you were made for. That this belief in equality might be a dim echo of being made in his image. Can I encourage you to dive into his story? And if you are here and a believer in Christ, can I encourage you not to miss the miracle of this teaching that all humankind is made in the image of God. That you are sitting around people who are made in the image of the internal God. Because it is so easy to miss that fact in just the course of ordinary life. Last week, for the first time, we took our kids to a Swans game. 
And like typical Swans fan, it's the second time we've been in a decade. And uh, we went there because we had free tickets. So we'll go again next time we have free tickets, which would be great in 2035. But while we were there, we sat down. We had great seats that were like, you know, all the way near the top of the stadium. Um, and at some point during the game, uh, you know, people sort of start to filter into their seats some way through the first quarter again, as they do at Swans games. Uh, but at some point, uh, a crew kind of parked next to us and it was clear that they had, um, they'd, been, they'd been out before the game. And there was one guy in particular from their crew who, uh, look, he was in his late 20s, so it probably wasn't the case, but he gave the energy that maybe this was the first time he'd been out without mum and dad, and he got a little bit carried away and excited. And he had a little bit too much to drink and was making the same jokes again and again and again. And as he was getting louder and more obnoxious and doing, th and like people were slowly starting to move away from him, like the guy in front of him had got his food and he's like, what do you got? Chicken schnitty, that looks great. And the guy was just like, I'm just not up for this chat and just, you know, made, him, made his way several rows down. As he did that, I found myself, you know, thinking or almost praying like, God, I know I can't do it, but if, if someone could just punch him in the face, that would be, <laughs> it would be great for all of us. And in that moment... The thought that was not first in my mind is he also is made in the image of God. I know it's sad the way he's behaving. I know his friends kept trying to rein him in and eventually took him away. There's someone too who is made in the image of God. Worthy of love, compassion even. And that we are surrounded by people who also are made in the image of God. We are not surrounded by people who are more or less annoying, more or less valuable, more or less interesting, more or less of an opportunity for us to get ahead in life, more or less of a reflection of ourselves and what we're like, but people who reflect the image of God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. No ordinary people. After church today, the chance you have is to talk with people who are not mere mortals. That the very act of being welcoming is an act of engaging with the reality that we are made in the image of God. That I care about people who are not part of my family line and maybe who benefit me in no way simply because they reflect the reality of a creator God who loves us. And may we even reflect on the fact of how much God loves you. That he made you in his image such that when you sinned and rebelled against him, it was worth it to him to send his only son to spill his blood on your behalf that he might welcome you back home. We have a God who is committed to a humankind who has rejected him over and over again because he loves us and has made us equally valuable. May we live out this truth for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your infinite wisdom, that you have made us unique, 
and complex and that we are, as it says in your word, fearfully and wonderfully made. And we pray that this reality wouldn't be lost on us. We pray that as we reflect over this series on the implications of being made equal in your image, that it would make us a people who are more loving, more just, and more desirous to glorify you. Now, Father, we pray that through this, you might be demonstrating your wisdom and your love through your church. We pray that you'd be strengthening us to follow you and to glorify you and to live lives that reflect the reality of your love toward us in Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.